Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. And our kingdom is built on a foundation of lies because we have not taken a walk today. So well, it's kind of rainy. It's kind of rainy, and we're in summer camp mode. And um, yes. So what is astonishing you today? I'm astonished by my change of heart concerning Juneteenth. Oh, okay. Yes. So I was not enthusiastic about Juneteenth being a national holiday at first because I'm just so aware of our society's tendency to take something important and deep and suck the meaning out of it and make it something commercial. Whatever could you mean? Like like Christmas and uh, Easter? Well, yes, <laughs> for example. And so, um, and there's another part of me as an African-American thinking, this is ours. Sure. This, this is for us. And I don't want, I just don't want it ruined. And so I wasn't that enthusiastic about it becoming a national holiday. And just recently, I've had a change of heart about that. Um, I was <laughs> I was looking at the book of Exodus and, oh. and God setting the Israelites free from slavery in Egypt. And it must have been a moment when the Holy Spirit spoke to me because my thought was, oh, I am not Jewish. And yet I so identify with the Israelites. I so identify with this story of God's liberation, God's power to set people free from bondage, that, um, that, that it, is, it is part of my story. And then Juneteenth, I thought, oh, well, that's what Juneteenth is as well. It is, it is for all God's people. It's for anyone who can embrace and celebrate and appreciate God's power to set slaves free. By the way, if you don't know, Juneteenth is the celebration of African Americans um, who were liberated from slavery two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. They were still under the lie that they were slaves. Um, it took two years for um, Union soldiers to reach uh, Texas uh, to let them know that they were um, no longer uh, in bondage. And, so, and that was on uh, June 19th, what, eighteen sixty. I think he signed it in 63, Jan yes. 163, so, so it was 1865. 1865, yes. You know, what is so interesting about that for me is um, so, so I, I understood and I really remember and regret a sermon I preached about 10 years ago about Juneteenth because my understanding of the holiday was um, flawed in that I really thought that the enslaved folks living in it was Galveston Texas is mm -hmm. that right I I thought uh, and it was I got it somewhere the idea that the enslaved folks living in Galveston Texas did not know about the Emancipation Proclamation and just learning more recently that like that's not true it wasn't that people didn't know about it it was that I the Civil War was going on and so obviously no one in Galveston Texas cared well I mean 
no one in the power structure of Galveston, Texas cared what Lincoln said or did because they no longer considered themselves part of the union. And then even after the Civil War was over, much in the same way as you saw it during Jim Crow, local authorities were saying, essentially, we make the rules here. And if you want us to observe federal laws, you're going to have to come down here and make us. And so it was just a matter, it wasn't a matter of people not knowing. It was a matter of people not being willing to comply with the new order until they were forced to do so by the federal authorities. And I didn't understand that. Like, I, I thought somehow that there was just a complete information embargo and was just reading about the ways that, no, I mean, information, there were really sophisticated systems of communication among enslaved communities. And, you know, much as people living in Mississippi in you know, the 1960s knew that they were United States citizens and knew that they had the right to vote. But when they showed up at their local polling stations, correct, the people, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in charge of the election said, no, you don't. Here's a new rule. Go away. And so even though they, you know, the right was there and the freedom was there, there weren't the um, structures to exercise that. And so I think that's a really important, you know, my, my, I, I feel badly because my initial understanding of the holiday and what happened was based on this idea that that the enslaved people in in Texas w- were ignorant of what had happened instead of I, I think the more truthful and I think important story for us to wrestle with is it's not that people don't know it's that we have structures and systems in place that insidiously and diabolically prevent people from living in the fullness of justice and freedom and that those systems and structures still exist to this day. And so I think for me as a white person thinking about Juneteenth, um, it's about recognizing like, hey, I um, ancestrally and historically have benefited by these systems and structures that disenfranchised and oppressed, um, you know, enslaved people and continue to disenfranchise and oppress descendants of enslaved people. And there are a lot of things right now that we all agree and know are true and shake our head about like, oh, we know that certain neighborhoods get policed in much more punitive and violent ways. And we know that certain schools are, you know, lack resources and opportunities. And, you know, we know that um, when people show up um, in the criminal justice system, they get treated very differently depending on their ethnicity and their wealth. We all know that's true and, and sort of, Many um, people say, well, that's bad, and I agree it's bad, but there's nothing I can do about it. And I think, you know, there probably were a lot of people, white people, living in Galveston, Texas, who knew, hey, this isn't right, this is no longer legal, but, you know, it's not my problem, it's not my responsibility, I don't have that authority. And so, so being able to understand that systems and structures – have the authority that we give them and we have a real responsibility I think just I mean as a citizen or and especially as a person of faith to say you know am I looking um am I am I being thoughtful and really seeking the Lord's guidance for where I am supposed to be disruptive where I am supposed to be a peacemaker in the sense of acknowledging, hey, knowing that something's not right 
is not enough. We need to be um, making faithful, deliberative actions to bring justice back into the system. Yes, because, you know, even, again, looking at the biblical narrative in Exodus, um, Pharaoh had to be forced. Right, right. Right. And also, you know, something I saw in that story pretty recently that I had never noticed before, you know, there is a passage in the actual moment of Exodus. So when they're actually leaving, um, when the, when the Israelites are sent to, you know, ask their neighbors for, um, you know, I mean, honestly, you could call it reparations, right? But they go to their neighbors and ask them for money and, um, and then there's a there's a line that says that there were people who were not ethnically Hebrew Correct. who yes. joined in who went with who went with them who left Egypt with its um, culture and structures and left the ethnic advantages that they had um, in and cast their lot in with the Hebrews and their strange liberating God and um, really, you know, gave up certainty and gave up privilege um, in order to be part of that band. And so I, I think that's really, you know, something important for us to wrestle with as well is just, you know, what does it mean when you are a person who is um, ethnically or historically linked to um, a, a dominant group that has had um, has been oppressive um, and has condoned injustice, like, you know, w- ultimately, which side are you going to stand on? And it's not as simple, it, it's not at all about ethnicity, because there's no ethnicity that is better or worse. You know, every person of every culture and hue is created in the image of God, but it is our um, allegiance to systems and structures and privilege that separate us from the liberation and the shalom of God. And that's something that we all have to wrestle with because you can be a person who adheres to those structures and systems um, and wants the advantages and privilege that those structures give you, no matter what your ethnicity is. And you can be a person who um, cleaves from them and casts your lot in with you know, the strange and wild new freedom that we find um, through God and Christ, no matter what your ethnicity is. Yeah, and we can carry that idea even further, right? Those Egyptians that left Egypt with the Israelites, uh, then when they all get out into the desert, the Israelites plus these Egyptians who left, one of the primary things that they all have to wrestle with is that they have left Egypt, but Egypt is still in them, right? Right. And so that has to be worked out of them. And so we can say that even as we move forward together as a multi-ethnic, multicultural people, that one of the things that has to happen for all of us, whether you are a white person or a black person is to, or a brown person, is to uh, begin to... um, uh, undo the white supremacy that is in you and that Mm. is work it is like being in the desert for 40 Mm. years right and i think you know it's just whatever sense of hierarchical structure you're clinging to that is anathema to the shalom of god same for patriarchy you could say this yeah and i and i um i i think it's really important to note the story about um you know miriam and moses and 
Moses, what's Moses' wife's name now? I can't remember. It's not Zipporah, is it? Yes. Okay. So, you know, Moses is the son-in-law of Jethro, the Midianite. If not, they may take both of our ordinations. I know, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, one of the first things that happens once the people are in the wilderness is that um, Moses's sister Miriam, who obviously is ethnic Hebrew like Moses is, um, gets very um, upset and comes to, and Aaron too, and there's some misogyny in the text as well, but Aaron and Miriam, there's a story that they come to Moses and are like, you should not be married to this foreigner, to this woman who isn't a Hebrew like us. I and believe uh, Ethiopian. I mean, he's a priest of Midian, so they, well, I don't know. Well, it's unclear to me, not to you. You are clear. Tell me. No, I'm I'm not clear. Keep going. Well, I mean, out. the whole point is, obviously, when people were in Egypt, there was an ethnic hierarchy, and the Hebrew people were at the bottom of it. And then once the Hebrew people come out and are on their way to Israel and to the promised land, it's interesting that... You know, just what you're saying, like that hierarchy is in everyone. And so it's this very natural thing of the people who have been oppressed by a hierarchical system then saying like, okay, well now, you know, this is for us. And so we are going to turn around and um, oppress and deny the humanity of other people who are not ethnically us, because that's, you know, your understanding of what it means to be founding a community is based on the community you were a part of, which was an oppressive supremacist system and so you find Aaron and Miriam going to Moses and trying to make him reject his wife who is not ethnically Hebrew and stirring up trouble in the camp and trying to get them um, you know to be shunned or kicked out and and God very definitively and forcefully um, you know visits judgment upon Miriam more than Aaron which is problematic to say like no this is not this new community that is being founded is not going to be an ethnic hierarchy so Hebrew people are going to be you know celebrated and safe and thrive in this community but not not by the misery or exclusion of other peoples so Moses uh, married Zipporah the daughter of a Midianite priest Numbers, the book of Numbers, also mentions a woman who is a Cushite, uh, which mm. is uh, Ethiopia, and scholars are unclear if this is a different woman, if Moses had an additional wife, or if this is the same person. Because biblical marriage often included multiple wives for one husband, which is just important for us all to know about yes. the book, which is at the center of our faith. So let me circle back to Juneteenth. All of this means... So next year, I'm going to invite you to the cookout. <laughs> I'm so happy <laughs> to be invited to the cookout. You're welcome to, you're welcome to come to the cookout. Um, I did, you know, have the thought, you know, all of those years when I was in school, on St. Patrick's Day, I wore green, and there ain't nothing about me that's Irish. <laughs> so I can invite you to the cookout on Juneteenth. Yeah, and I just think it's important that, you know, as a white person, I just, I just want to have a lot of sensitivity to the fact that um, I mean, there's just a lot of tenderness right now um, as as people are wrestling with what it means um, to be black in this country, to be brown in this country, to be white in this country, and that obviously you 
are not, you have not been designated the spokesperson for all of your people. And so the way that you feel about this is going to be as different from other people as if you selected one random white person from a crowd and said, you know, give me, tell me what white people think about celebrating Christmas. I mean, just, so I think it's just, you know, important to understand that, you know, this is, especially, I mean, as a federal holiday, this is very new that not all black people grew up celebrating Juneteenth period that, you know, there's discussion and disagreement within the black community about who Juneteenth is for, because there are many people who are black, but are not African-American. Right. Correct. And so, you know, just, I, I think sometimes, as a white person, we show up and we just want to get it right. And it's very hard to understand that actually there is no one right way and that we need to come into a space with humility and curiosity and wanting to make connections and not just wanting to check something off our list. And so, yeah, just, and I think it's always, I mean, usually always fine just to kind of, um, ask questions and not make assumptions and then choose, you know, pre-decide, like I'm not going to be offended um, because there's just a lot of things because as Christians, when we want to show up in the world with the fruits of the spirit, Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, we are willing to be patient. We are willing to be long suffering we are willing, you know, gentleness, goodness, kindness, self-control, and understanding that, you know, our communities can all need more people who are participating with the Holy Spirit in bearing those fruits in our lives because we live in really tender, intense time. And so... Yeah, my advice to white people who are thinking about embracing Juneteenth or other things... Um, labeled African-American, I, I think you, you need to hold together three things. One, the actual history. You need to understand where things come from, understand the history in all of its pain and glory. Mm-hmm. Two, you need to embrace how that history is still affecting right now. Mm-hmm. because it does. There are still reverberations, sometimes strong, uh, from history. And the third thing is I think you need to be able to place it in a, a theological context, a theological framework. For me, Juneteenth is about God's liberating power. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, I think, and, and that's work to do those three things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think fundamentally one reason that Juneteenth is um, unique is it is it is at its heart an ambiguous story, right? Because unlike, say, the 4th of July, which I think also is ambiguous but can be presented as, you know, there were good guys and there were bad guys. And on this day, the good guys, you know, started the process of becoming free. Now, we all know that the story is much more, much more, just much more ambiguous and deep and complicated than that. But you can tell that story simply, but there's no way to tell the story of Juneteenth without ambiguity because it is, it it is a day of liberation. And also it's a day of deep um, sadness that there were two additional years of oppression, not to mention 
the hundreds of years of oppression that went before it. So it's just, you know, it is a story. I mean, I think in that way, it's a it's a uniquely American holiday because it forces us to sit with the tension of what is very good about our history as a people and and what is very destructive and painful and and that you know everyone has had a different experience and there's no you know there's no one simple story that can be told and that's you know, that's, that, I think that's helpful for us. Like we want, we want to do what we want to, we have dualistic minds. And so we just want to say, okay, if something is worth something, then it has to be good. And if something is bad, then it's all bad. And so, you know, a story like Juneteenth is just a, it's a bittersweet story. It's a, it's a wonderful and also tragic day. And that's, um, you know, that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance in that that I don't think is comfortable to sit with, but makes us um, more healthier individuals yeah. and a healthier community. So both celebration and mourning. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So what's astonishing you? Well, I mean, I think a little bit, and I'm, I'm a connection-making person. So uh, at The Grove right now, we've been in a worship series called Real Talk and just thinking a lot about, trying to think really intentionally about how we talk to each other as a spiritual community um, in general. I, I think that um, in the New Testament in particular, there's a lot of really click, there's a lot of clarity around the way that believers should speak to one another. And even in letters from the very earliest church, and, and also you can find um, Jesus's concerns too, with like how much um, the way we speak matters. Um, and, and, um, I think that sometimes in the church in America, at least, uh, we can just sort of really downplay the importance of that and just sort of think like, oh, no, we want to focus on bigger things. Um, we want to focus on more spiritual things or we want to focus on, you know, programmatic or ministry. Like, what does it matter how we talk? It matters what we what we do. Uh, and, um, you know, it's really not true. And I, so I think trying to sort of recover that, that and also this idea that knowing how God wants us to talk, agreeing with God about the power of words and what we, quote, should be doing, knowing and agreeing in and of itself are just pretty darn useless, um, that we really have to be intentional about practicing and holding ourselves accountable um, and, and that's really challenging, especially since, you know, we, many of us have come from communities where just the importance of that was really, really downplayed. And it's fascinating to me that, you know, when we have conversations about who's a who's taking the Bible seriously, um, you know, how we speak about people is never a litmus test. Right. So, like, you know, it, it's just interesting sort of the the ways, um, the common ways that almost everyone fails to take scripture seriously are you know we just sort of think oh well that <laughs> you know no no but that wasn't serious that's not something we need to take seriously but in this past week in particular we were talking about um conflict and I guess I just what is astonishing me and and I I know you have this experience sometimes because we talk about it 
um, is how so frequently you'll be working with a passage as a preacher or as a pastor. And then in just very practical ways, it's, it's your life. And um, it's both, it's just weird um, to use a theological term. It's just weird. And um, so we were talking about conflict and, you know, I, I, I'm a, I don't like conflict um, and I've been growing in this. I feel like um, the spirit has been stretching me and pushing me just to sort of um, become, to grow up a little bit about recognizing that and having right expectations that if you're going to be a pastor, your job is to serve people and love people and lead people as they grow and growing involves both learning and unlearning. And for me, I just really need to unlearn this kind of instinctive um, sort of flight. I don't have a fight response to conflict. I have a flight response and sometimes a freeze response. <laughs> and I just am really um, sort of intrinsically afraid of that. But I, I even as I'm looking, um, and so I've been having, finding myself annoyingly, like lots of going into a lot of conversations that have been not, you know, not like people calling me names or anything, but just having to have a lot of really uncomfortable conversations with people where, you know, there's just a irreconcilable difference oh. and needing to sort of say something that I know is going to disappoint someone or cause pain. And I, I'm, and I guess, you know, over the years I've been learning that um, you conflict is not a sign of an unhealthy community. It's a sign of a healthy community and that um, there's obviously a wrong way of doing conflict, um, but there is a very right and God honoring way of walking into conflict and that it is, and this is the astonishment, I mean, can be a real gift, can be a real source of growth and healing and blessing and sort of learning, oh, God really is alive and at work in this community and and not through me and not like, oh, God can do whatever I can do. And beyond that, everybody's out of luck, you know, and just how many times I walk into a conversation really scared and what I discover in the conversation is, oh, that my conversation partner is, is, is not where I thought they would be. <laughs> um, the story I thought I knew walking in is not actually the story. Um, and oh, we, this, this, this is a, um, is a gift. And so I, that's happened just several times. And I recently, um, it certainly happened many times in the past. I, I foresee, many more um, opportunities for conflict in the future. And, and just that conflict can grow grace is just so counterintuitive. And um, so I'm astonished every time it happens. I'm astonished at how frequently I walk into a conversation internally terrified. I mean, I have a good poker face, so I don't know that people really know it, but I walk into a conversation internally terrified and walk out of that conversation just feeling like, seven fire trucks have been lifted off of my soul um, because, you know, what I was so afraid to find out was that, you know, this person would never 
you know, love me or like me or, again or that our relationship would be destroyed or that I had somehow failed God or done something to, you know, and discovering like, oh, actually, um, the, you know, grace is sufficient for me. And so I, I, I'm just astonished at that and also <laughs> astonished that even though I know it, I won't say it doesn't get any easier for me. I mean, it is easier, um, but it's still not easy. And so you'd think like I would be at the point now where I would be like, okay, I know this is going to be okay. And I, and I don't like, and I think the reality is you can know it's going to be okay, but also know that it's going to be painful. And so that's just a, a reality like, oh, this is going to hurt um, me. <laughs> and also, you know, I'm going to be okay. And, and the community is going to be okay because fundamentally okay is, Jesus saying on the cross, it is finished, and Jesus enthroned at the right hand of God, the Father Creator, praying for us. And so I can walk into this feeling totally overwhelmed and insufficient and vulnerable and know that all of that is true. And also there's just a larger and more beautiful truth that this somehow is a part of, and I can trust that even if I don't trust myself or you know, so that, that's it. That's what's astonishing about it. Yeah, the enemy of our souls um, can really do a number on us when we only stay inside of our own internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. Because then we begin to have a conversation, conversations with people that we should actually talk to and in our own internal dialogue, we imagine to ourselves what they think and what they would say to us, and then we respond to them. And before long, it becomes a whole thing, and, and it creates an even larger, taller, thicker wall, thicker mm -hmm. barrier in the relationship. And you, at some point, have to break through that by having a conversation with them. And it makes me think of, at least for my own life, when those times come, um, I think of that um, that prayer by um, St. Francis of Assisi, um, make me an instrument of your peace, grant that I may never seek so much to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand. understand yeah, yeah, that's that's the line for me. And um, because so often my my impulse, my passion is that, I just want them to understand my point of view because if they right. understand my point of view, they're going to agree with me. And I really have to rein that in yeah. to listen because as much as I want to be heard, the other person also wants to be heard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think like, the more healing uh, we can do, the more um, we can sink into our acceptance and our worthiness and our belonging in Christ that is unshakable and um, not ever at stake, no matter what is happening or who we're talking to, like the more deeply we can sink into that, the more that we can, you know, really pray and mean, you know, I'm, I'm seeking one thing and that's to dwell in the house of the Lord all the day of my life. And that that's my primary real why and desire, then no matter who I'm talking to, I'm talking to them from my place 
from my dwelling place in the house of the Lord. And so that means I really, I'm not as threatened because the, the, I want to understand them because I know I'm already understood by God. And so that really helps. Yes. And if, if our relationships with people is based upon always agreeing, always being on the same page, then we're doomed. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, it's important sometimes to be able to say, hey, I don't have to mirror back or react to the person who I'm in conflict with or in conversation with. Like the person in front of me can disapprove me, can dislike me, can, you know, really misunderstand you know, my story or my motives or what I'm coming from. And I, I still have the choice to decide whether or not I am going to give that back or whether or not I can say that might be so. And still there are things about you that I see and that I love and that I value. And, um, you know, I choose to still do that. And, and that's not a have to, I'm not saying that anybody should have to, but I think, it's important just to know that we ultimately, you know, my primary relationship, your primary relationship is with Christ. And so, you know, that just leaves a lot of space and a lot of room. Um, even to say, God, there's some really brokenness for me in this relationship. And I, you know, just want to run to you with that. And I want to acknowledge that, you know, I, I don't feel like I can be who I'm supposed to be here and I have some wounds that need healing um, or I, I need a boundary or, you know, I need your protection. Like all of those things can be true too. But um, I think ultimately we worship a God who's a redeemer and a reconciler. And one of the distinctive things about the kingdom of Jesus, I think, is that our enemies become through grace our brothers and sisters and our beloved ones. And that's not because we are masochists and begin to love the people who are oppressing us or abusing us um, or harming us at all. It's that transformation is really possible for everyone in the kingdom. And so there's a sense of, I mean, I, I think and I've said this recently, so forgive me if I've said it here, but it just occurred to me, I was praying Psalm 23 and that part where it says the Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And my whole life, I've always understood that as like, oh, I'm sitting at the banquet table and like my enemies are like. You're like, sucks to be you. Right, right. Like I'm having this great banquet and my enemies are like over there in the naughty chair, like hungry and waiting for my crumbs. And then realizing like, no, in, in the fullness of the kingdom, I'm in the presence of my enemies because my enemies aren't my enemies anymore because we're sitting down and feasting together at the Lord's table, because that is what is happening at the Last Supper. Well, Jesus it, is feasting with his enemies. When it comes to conflict, I think our deep-seated fear is that we're going to lose something. Right. We're going to lose the argument. Therefore, we're going to lose power. We're going to lose belonging, uh, esteem, belong. We're going to we're about to lose something, which is why that fight or flight or freeze mm -hmm. um, uh, response kicks in. But if we are grounded in Christ we need to remind ourselves we are then grounded in the one who 
has and holds all things. Even if we do lose something, we are connected to the one who has all things and that will be restored. So ultimately we will not lose anything. Right. And I think to, to be able to say like, there are just times when we have enmity, like this is just a part of being human and being able to say, ultimately, you know, I believe that there's great value because Jesus showed me in blessing, you know, blessing those who curse you and turning the other cheek and going the second mile. And I believe there's great value in that because that's what I see on the cross is Jesus choosing not to destroy those who are destroying him, but out of the power of the glory of God, turning their act of destruction into an act of salvation so outrageous that it encompasses not just Jesus and not just Jesus's followers, but even those who are actively opposing Jesus like that is why the gospel ultimately is beauty. And so I think to be able to say, do I have the power to do that? Absolutely not. But do I think that God is still about that same work? And do I feel like Paul that I would boast in the idea, uh, you know, in any oppression I experience or opposition I experience or, you know, any um, repentance I I am blessed to be a part of, and I mean my own repentance, not other people's. Um, I mean, I would because it's all a sign of the brokenness of the world coming together for good for those who are loved by God, which is, I outrageously believe all, all, all people who were created by God. Like I, I just believe in the power of the goodness of God, which is then why you can show up in a conversation with your enemies and feel like ultimately the crazy foolish thing I believe is that someday, someday this person is not going to be my enemy anymore and I'm not going to be theirs. Um, and this relationship will be precious to me because it will be a sign of how God overcomes with goodness. So and that you're not in control of that. That I'm not in control and the one who is in control is, is trustworthy, right? And that I can celebrate that. Like this idea that God's goodness is for us and and even when I can't execute it, which is, you know, all the time, like nothing that is truly good and of God is it comes from my energy or my intention or my, you know, that that God is gathering up the crumbs. <laughs> that we imperfectly and weakly throw out and, you know, creating a banquet. Um, that's an, an astonishing thing. And, you know, it feels good to know the goodness of God when you're sitting down like this with a friend. Like, I mean, that this, this is such evidence of the goodness of God. And there's just a whole other level of the goodness of God when you are investing in a relationship with someone who is not a friend and yet somehow inexplicably could only be Jesus becomes a friend and we just won't know that if we're not willing to let the spirit lead us not in I don't think into an abusive place or into a dangerous place but but into a place of discomfort yes and like we can have a conversation with someone who disagrees with us it won't kill us so yeah um we were going to talk about something but there is no way that we can do that in the next five minutes. I don't think so. So we might have to save it. Um, 
Yeah, because yeah. I really want to talk okay, about Okay, well, we really, we will. that's just a teaser know, for right? next week. There's something we are really excited to talk about for next week. So um, catch us then. Do you have any uh, last important words for anyone? Not a single one. <laughs> we both are so blessed this summer that our congregations are hosting summer camps. Yes. And so um, we're just grateful for the opportunity to um, show up and make breakfast and welcome people and um, just uh, stand in the gap in some places for families and just make the summer beautiful for a lot of kids. So um, we're going to get back to camp and pastoring. Um, so thanks for listening this week. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church to Ride a Prez, mm-hmm. uh, you can start off by visiting their website, which is deridaprez.faithlifesites.com. That's sites with an S, two S's actually. Yes. Um, And you can check out their Derida's uh, YouTube page and also their um, podcast. It's D-E-R-I-T-A. The YouTube page is, you know, at YouTube and the podcast is at the Podbean. Podbean? Pod? I can't do it. Podbean. Yes. Podbean site um so you can find yolanda's messages there you can find nicole thompson's message from this past sunday which i heard was which a real was crackerjack yes pretty amazing pretty amazing so that's the prodigal son story on father's, father's day. day it was good yeah it was yep. very good yep that so yeah check that out and you can also always join them for worship on uh sundays at 11 a.m if you're in the greater Charlotte area. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's church, the Grove, mm-hmm. uh, you can go to the website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our podcast and our YouTube channel, um, The Grove Charlotte, and you can look for the green tree. And uh, you can worship with us Sundays at 10 a.m. So thank you for listening, and we will talk to you next week. <laughs>